Welcome to episode four of the NHS Armed Forces Health podcast, a series that aims to help you, the Armed Forces community, access the plethora of NHS services available. Through these episodes, we will look at different aspects of healthcare, from leaving service to finding a GP, taking care of physical and mental health, and provision for forces families. In today's episode, we're looking at physical health, whether that's a result of a medical discharge, chronic conditions, or simply keeping on top of things. For this, I am joined by Shahan Hetiarachi, Chair of NHS England Clinical Reference Group for Armed Forces and NHS Surgeon. Theresa Griffiths, the former Commanding Officer of Defence Medical Rehabilitation Centre at Headley Court and Managing Director of the DRIVE Project. And Greg Stevenson, Mental Health Practitioner for Veterans High Intensity Service North, Op Courage. We like to begin each podcast with the same question to each person. Why did you get involved in the AFPPV and why are you here? I'm going to kick this off with Sherhan, um, who everyone else calls H, so I'm going to do uh, that as well. Um, so over to you. So I guess it goes back to I've been involved with the army since I left school. Um, I did a gap year, but I've been a reservist for about 20 years, serving with 144 Parachute Medical Squadron. I've deployed a couple of times to Afghanistan. And I think as a, I'm, I'm a surgeon full time. So um, for me, it was kind of still being linked into those people we looked after on operational tools and tried to make sure, having kind of done the hard grafting, hard work, while we're out overseas to make sure those people and their families and their loved ones are still looked after and maintained in health once we're back in the UK. And Teresa? Hello, yes, I'm uh, Teresa and I'm a a veteran. I recently left the Royal Air Force after uh, 27 years um, as a nurse. Um, I'm a bit like H, I'm passionate about doing the best for our, our, our serving personnel and our veterans and the whole armed forces community and providing that care. I've deployed across the world um, to many um, conflicts, um, but lastly in my career, I was the military chief nurse at Birmingham and also the commanding officer of the Defence Medical Rehab Centre. And just prior to leaving, I was introduced to the AFPPV as the military uh, serving rep. Thank you, great. And finally, Greg. Yeah, I'm, I'm also a veteran. Um, I've got lived experience of um, uh, becoming physically disabled through um, service attributable uh, injury. Um, and I've since uh, discharged become particularly passionate about mental and physical health. Um, yeah, so so that's why I'm here, just to share a little bit of my, my journey and my, my sort of vision of, of, and experiences. Brilliant. And we look forward to hearing about that. So H, I'm going to come to you first. What are the most common ongoing physical health needs veterans experience? So it's a really good question, Alice. And one of the frustrations we have in the NHS system is because we don't collect data on veterans prospectively. It's really it's actually a hard question to ask, answer. So what we can look at is our physical healthcare pathways we have set up for veterans. And we look at what comes through the vast majority is musculoskeletal problems, so hips, knees, backs. But we also have um, people who have been involved in blast or had particular um, problems with um, potential brain injury. We also have hearing issues. And we, we see a, a, a wide range of things, all the way from you know, problems with fertility to problems with heat illness. But what the one thing that really kind of you know makes this group of, of um, people more difficult to treat on the NHS is they are quite complex because as well as having those physical issues, they'll have chronic pain issues and they'll often have mental health issues due to the context of how they became injured or suffered their um, their physical health problems while serving. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a complex constellation, but I'd say it's musculoskeletal combined with chronic pain and some mental health issues is the kind of, the kind of most standard type of people we see. Teresa, it's been said quite a bit on this podcast series um, that one of the major things leaving the military is to manage expectations in terms of the difference between the provision from the Defence Medical Services and the civilian NHS. Is this the case when it comes to physical injury? And if so, why? Oh, 
I would really love to say that that is not true, um, but unfortunately, uh, there is a gap, and uh, the answer is yes. And the reasons for it are actually very complex. But the real reason for the gap is rooted in the uh, existence of why we have a separate defence medical services. Um, in, in, in military speak, we talk about military effectiveness as fighting power. And that's based on three components, uh, which are the conceptual component, the physical component and the moral component. And in very simple terms, the conceptual com- components, all about the ideas behind how to fight. The physical component is the means and the resources, which is obviously the equipment, the, res- uh, the resources and the people, which is the most important resource. And thirdly, the moral component which is about the motivation uh, for our soldiers, sailors and airmen to fight. And the Defence Medical Services throughout history has been critical in supporting all of those components, but most most importantly, the latter two. And as we've seen most recently in in Afghanistan and in Iraq, um, it's been proven that if we can deliver the very highest level of care to our, our, our personnel on the battlefield right the way through to rehabilitation, their motivation to fight and take greater, greater risk on that battlefield is, uh, is, 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 is increased. So that uh, supports the moral component. So it's critical that there is a really uh, uh, excellent medical support service. And the second reason that the Defence Medical Service exists is to maintain its people. It's a bit like maintaining a car. You know, our people are our most important resource. Without people, there there is no um, armed service uh, no armed um, armed services to deploy. So it's absolutely vital to ensure that they're you know they're maintained, fit, and ready to fight. And it would be completely inappropriate to have um, a serving force. Uh, that is downgraded, uh, wounded, sick, or unable, unable to deploy when the government wants to actually, um, uh, you know, press the button and and deploy that force. But the result is a gap between the two when uh, the patients leave, and for the patients, that's a real gap. And of course, they don't care why that gap exists. They just see that there's a reduced level of care that they've previously known, and for many of them. It's a perception that they feel that this reduced level of care is that society has actually forgotten them or that their service hasn't been valued. Greg, I want to bring you in now. You've got direct experience of having been treated through the defence medical services system and then out in the civilian world. So how was that transition for you? Yeah, well, I was one of those very fortunate um, um, service personnel who, who who had this fantastic care. You know, the initial couple of years from point of injury uh, on, on operations uh, in Afghanistan w- w- was incredible. Um, I was part of that well-oiled machine and, you know, right from point of injury, surgery through to, um, you know, getting prosthetic legs at uh, Headley Court, you know, it was an incredible pathway that, 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 that you know, not only looked after myself, but, you know, um, thought about my family, um, uh, thought about the wider sort of context of, of, of injury, um, you know, occupational therapy assessments, you know, what am I going to do for work? Um, you know, all, all the things that were kind of, you know, buzzing around my head at that time, um, you know, psychological therapies. Um, and then, yeah, you know, the point came when I was medically discharged. Um, and I think for me personally, that's where I began to struggle um, a little bit. You know, I, um, I was carrying an MSK issue. You know, it was interesting to say, hey, say, say that because, I couldn't understand how I had this, um, you know, I had these state-of-the-art prosthetic legs, but yeah, I had lower back pain that was preventing me from, <laughs> from, from from engaging with them. And, you know, I was quite naive, you know, I was newly disabled, you know, I didn't, I didn't understand what life, you know, envisaged with, with living with a physical disability, as daft as that sounds, you know, I kind of thought about the obvious things, but yeah, I, you know, my, my aspirations in work were, were weren't, feasible in all honesty you know at that time I was thinking oh, I might become a tree surgeon I might do you know I was thinking of all these weird and wonderful you know careers which appealed to Greg uh, pre-injury but perhaps weren't quite as uh, accessible with a disability and that's that, that I think that's a natural progression with anybody with, with a traumatic injury you know you've got to now live with that uh, and also the family's got to get used to that you know I wasn't Greg who you know went off to Afghanistan I was, I was Greg now with a, a physical disability um, so so life was different um, and as I transitioned, um, obviously, there's a little bit more ownership on you to access service, which for me was a particular challenge. I didn't realise I was really poor at communication, but actually 
I, I was, I was pretty awful. <laughs> you know, I, I, I was, I was used to, I was only in the military for a short time, six years. So I don't feel I was institutionalized, but it was very familiar to me. I, I, I quite, I felt comfortable within the rank structure. I felt comfortable within, you know, if somebody said something was going to get done, I knew it was going to get done. Where, whereas, you know, sometimes yeah, in the NHS, you know, a big part of my role now within, um, within the Veterans High Intensity Service is, is to just ensure that communication streams are open that the veterans being listened to, the family are being listened to, uh, that the veterans communicating, you know, uh, the physical injury, uh, you know, uh, are they are they suffering with depression? Are they are, are they living with post-traumatic stress symptoms that are, have not been sort of exposed? And trying to look at the the, the sort of fuller picture, and I, th- I think I developed that through my lived experience of of yeah, perhaps thinking really obviously about you know, the, the glamorous side of, of, of prosthetic legs and, uh, you, you know, uh, rehabilitation and running marathons, but actually forgetting the things that hold it together, the cement in, in, in rehabilitation, which is the, the, the you know, the, 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 the sort of caring for yourself, the, the, the mental well-being, uh, the, you know, the, the really obvious things like the good communication, developing, you know, links with GPs, with, with, with physiotherapists, so that, you know, for, just using my example, the MSK issue doesn't become a, a huge issue where you might need surgery. You know, you can deal with it at that at that stage where something can be done. Teresa, what is the difference practically and I suppose emotionally between a medical discharge and leaving voluntarily? Um, and then I'm just going to sort of add an, another question to this. And how or and or can it spill into people's prospects work wise too? Yeah, so um, it's huge. The difference is huge. And it's all about control and choice. If you have a choice, you have control. If you don't have choice, you lose all of that control. And in the military, there's three ways you can leave. There's predetermined dates that we all know about, and we can plan against those. Uh, We can choose to leave um, um, for our own personal reasons, like um, I did recently. And then the third reason, as you've um, already discussed, and and, uh, is the fact that people are medically discharged because they're deemed not fit enough to undertake that military role. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier. You know, you can't have a military force full of people that are not fit. But at the end of the day, these are people, you know, with with needs, with families um, that need to be supported. Um, So I think irrespective of whether you're medically discharged or whether you leave, leaving the military is still really, really tough. And that's because being in the military is really special. It's like being part of a unique family or a tribe. It has its own special language. You know, you just have looks. You don't even have to actually speak. We have lived, shared goals, experiences, and an understanding of what's needed. And, of course, it's based on standing traditions, ethos, values and history that we join for and we're really proud of. And there's this unique camaraderie and unspoken respect about being in it together and always having each other's back, even in the most darker, darkest and dangerous times. So therefore, really, it should come as no surprise, I don't think, that if people suddenly find themselves um, being medically discharged, that this is going to be a, a massive um, impact on them because they didn't prepare for this. It wasn't their choice and they didn't plan. And, and in my experience, especially at Headley Court, what I found was uh, that people are often not ready to leave. You know, they, they feel a personally uh, a failure that they actually haven't achieved career goals or roles or promotion. The military is all about hierarchy of promotions. Uh, Being in the military is often and and has been for lots of people a a long time or a lifetime dream or ambition. So it's losing that dream. And what are they going to do? They can't possibly, you know, what what possibly can I do if I can't be in the army or the air force or the the Navy? And there is sometimes a fear of going back to something that some of our, our populations have escaped from. You know, they left, um, they left uh, uh, you know, their families because it wasn't particularly uh, a good experience. So they joined the Army, Air Force or Navy to, to get away from something. So the fear of actually having to go, to go back to something that actually they escaped from is, is, is not good. And then there's that whole feeling of being dismissed, just the language that we use, medically discharged. You know, we look at, we're looking at language across defence and, and society today. But that message in itself to, to our people, you know, medically discharged, it almost implies you're no longer useful to us uh, and that their, their service is, is wiped clean. 
So that Im- that emotional impact on top of having to uh, transition into the civilian world without um, uh, you know medical issue is huge uh, and and often spills into um, uh, uh, individuals trying to seek uh, employment outside or just trying to find out what their new normal life looks like. And I think just before I finish, and I think we're going to talk about this later, when we're talking about physical health, there are two real distinct areas. There's those uh, those physical uh, injuries as a result of uh, a combat trauma, uh, and then there are those chronic disorders. But there's a real difference um, in, in those two and how both the patients perceive themselves and how society perceives them. Thank you. Can you just give us a bit more about that, just from your own personal opinion of those of those two differences? I think that's really useful for people who are listening, who perhaps have have left because of, say, chronic pain or because they've been injured in combat. Yeah, there is a really big uh, uh, difference, uh, and I talk and I use the experience at Headley Court. Uh, so uh, in 2014, um, we left, you know, the UK uh, uh, withdrew from Afghanistan and there was an expectation that the uh, activ- the activity at uh, the Defence Medical Rehab Centre would go down because, there, you know, wh- why would there be so m- a need for so many patients? This didn't happen. The numbers remained constant, but the patient profile changed. It became, the trauma became less acute but there was an actual increase in the number of chronic um, admissions. And many of these disorders were related to what H was talking about earlier earlier on, the MSK, long-standing back issues, long-standing shoulder and knee problems. And what was really um, uh, fascinating, but also very sad, was that most of this chronic group um, had associated uh, invisible wounds and associated injuries that created this insidious spiral of almost like a you know a spiral of doom. So most of these patients who've got chronic um, chronic issues, as H will be able to explain more, have often got chronic pain. And if you have chronic pain, you're living with that the whole time. So they're on huge amounts of different painkillers that has an impact on their ability to do normal uh, daily living activities. Many of them have mental health um, issues. They have low mood, they have depression, and and, uh, many of them um, had uh, PTSD as well, which was uh, slightly differently related. They also struggled with low esteem, low confidence, and a lack of self-worth. And all of these compounded together to cause relationship issues. So many of them were looking at uh, problems in their relationships, looking at divorce, relationships, uh, problems with their children. They couldn't communicate with their, their, you know, their families and extended families. And, you know, um, a lot of the fathers didn't know how to communicate with their children. And of course, that runs into financial issues, potential employment concerns. So it's critical that we sort these issues out, because if we don't, then this particular group is much more vulnerable um, at potentially experiencing homelessness, going to prison or worse, taking their own life. But for me, the worst thing was that this particular group did not feel that they were worthy and they felt that they were fraudulent when compared to their colleagues with combat injury. And the truth is, and we haven't done the research for it, but the truth is that actually this group, there was a result of combat injury, but it took a much longer time. So it was possibly probably a result of um, continuous deployments over many, many, many years doing extraordinary things in the most austere of environments. Um, And I was always absolutely passionate at Headley Court that these two groups should never um, be be treated differently. Everyone is deserving of the same treatment, irrespective of how they gained that injury. Uh, And I, yeah, and and it's a real problem. And speaking a couple of weeks ago uh, to some of the, the patients at Headley Court, that 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 feeling still exists even uh you know 10 years uh after um afghanistan and iraq thank you so i think key points there transition can be challenging however you leave and physical injuries can potentially affect every single part of their of your life if it's not managed effectively but everyone is worthy of care regardless of how you're injured and i i, I think that's really interesting that chronic pain is service related, but it might not manifest it immediately. It might be further down the line. 
H. I just wondered if there was anything else that you'd like to add. No, I mean, I think um, what Theresa describes is the, the complexity of some of the veterans we see. I mean, we have to put it also in context because, you know, majority of the armed force community who have healthcare issues have those resolved in a very positive way, um, often with just normal NHS resource. And we also should remember um, there's always a perception within service that the NHS is, is no good and that sometimes can, you know, sully um, their experience of transitioning. But the thing to remember for people who have been through services, the care they received in service was delivered by clinicians who work in the NHS, be they regular or reservist or otherwise. So, you know, that level of quality exists in the NHS. And the trick we need to do is connect um, the armed force community into those individuals who form that team when people are on ops and make sure they maintain that care. Because the NHS is a big beast. It has a million patient contacts a day. And unfortunately, our force community is a small part of that, but a very, very important part of it. So if we can basically connect up our armed force community with those people within the NHS who have served or are serving or have military focus, then we can maintain that level of care that was delivered while people were in service. So that's what we've been trying to do. And I think the complexity that Theresa um, outlines is absolutely there. And, for example, in our physical healthcare pathways, we make absolutely no distinction of whether this was combat-related or not combat-related. If you've got a healthcare issue that, as a consequence of your time served, whatever that is, then we will pick it up. Now, actually, about two-thirds of those, those healthcare issues can be dealt with by normal NHS pathways because they're relatively straightforward. They're, you know... Someone's got a heart problem that they can see their local cardiologist. Someone's got an ankle that got broken in training, but actually just needs a bit of fixing done by their local um, orthopedic surgeon. But some of them fall into category that Therese describes, where you've got a complexity of physical health care, mental health care, and chronic pain. And the problem historically has been those people have bounced around the system because the NHS is not designed to look after those kind of patients and it doesn't do it very well with civilian patients with equipment I, i'm a trauma surgeon and my trauma patients often will end up in that kind of category we don't have services within the nhs routinely to deal with them so what we've been doing in the armed forces team over the last um particularly over the last two to five years is developing a unique offering for that kind of high complexity level of patients so to make sure they get their physical health care their mental health care and their pain issues dealt with in a holistic way alongside military charities, and I'm sure we'll come on to that later. So, you know, I think Theresa is absolutely right. You know, there is, a, there is a very unique need in some of our patients who are transitioning through out of the military and their families. And I'm hoping what we can get across today is that the NHS is very much in the right place with the right people to step up to meet that challenge and is meeting that challenge. And, you know, it's amazing. I feel it's not like, you know, Greg's actually involved in delivering the service. You know, we've got the right people. You know, we've got the people who understand the context and can deliver the effect, as, as Theresa explained. And um, it's really just trying to get that message out there that actually, you know, that there are solutions to this. People do not need to, to, to suffer in silence or think there is no help. There is help and there's the right help. So don't suffer in silence. The NHS is the right place with the right people delivering the right service. I think that's uh, it's the a NHS in collaboration with military charities. There's a, there's a really strong collaboration. So, you know, so it's, a, it's a strong relationship. As we saw during Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, we delivered world-class healthcare because we have the NHS, Defence Medical Services and the British charities absolutely lockstep together, focused around making sure that our serving men and women and their families are properly looked after. So you've got that collaboration there. And then obviously this is sort of underpinned or um, the framework sits within the Armed Forces Covenant, which states that no member of the Armed Forces, present or past, all their family members experience disadvantage or inequality because of their military service. So H, just sticking with you, what does this mean in practical terms to this community group? I think the right way to talk about this is that we want the best care for our armed forces community as we would any other NHS patient. So all we're doing is saying every NHS patient should get the best care possible, including the armed forces community. And then we can say, well, look, the armed force community is different, as have we've heard, you know, heard from Greg, heard from Teresa. You know, it's different. There's different healthcare needs. 
And the NHS every day of the week is creating separate pathways. I don't like to call them pathways. I'm told not to call them pathways, but separate op- offerings for people who have different healthcare needs. You know, you might have brittle asthma as a child and you need to have a particular healthcare need. You might have some really complex, you know, mental health problem. You'll have different healthcare needs. You have different offering. So all we're saying is the armed force community in that model have different healthcare needs, which if they are going to be met effectively, have to have a different offering that is bespoke to what they require. So what we have developed in the armed forces team is that bespoke offering, which is based around what our armed forces community and their families require. And the way that reason that works in a way that trying to push priority doesn't work is if you don't have the right offering that meets what the needs that people have, it doesn't matter if, if you're first of the queue or the end of the queue. When you get to the front of the queue, you still get the right healthcare. So that's why priority, I think, just doesn't work. It's, 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 it's pointless. What is pointful and what is delivering effect is making sure what we have created within the NHS with our armed forces charity partners is what our veterans and their families and the armed forces community are serving reservists need. And I think that's what we're in the process of doing. I think we're kind of, I think we're building the fact we've got people like Nikki involved, we've got people like Greg involved. Um, I've had lots of conversations with Teresa about this. You know, I think we're now very much you know, a long way down the road in developing that. So I think, I think, you know, we are on the way to develop, I think, the best healthcare offering for armed force community in the world. It'd be better than the US, better than Australia, better than Canada. And, um, and I think we should be giving people in the armed force community the confidence to know that it is coming and they can ask for it and it is available. Greg, can I bring you in here? Um, you've obviously used the system. You're now working within the NHS for Up Courage. What would you like to see improve? And is there anything veterans can do to help themselves? Yeah, it's, a re- it's a really good question, and one I'm quite uh, passionate about. I thought I'm really, I'm really excited by um, uh, you know some of the things that H is saying. Um, I, I think I think that's uh, you know clear and obvious that the consistency for me we, we need, needed to, needed to just improve slightly. Um, I, there was some fantastic work, and, it, and, it, and it's really obvious that the NHS can do fantastic work. Um, you know, th- th- there is a bit of a passion within the veteran community, and I think that comes from fear of discharge. You know, fearful of the unknown, fearful of you know being modicoddled a little bit by the armed forces because it's like it's a small cohort. You know, with a you know your direct access route. You know, every, every camp has a as a as a, as a medical officer that you can kind of get hold of on that day, but. Yes, yeah, so, so, so you, I, I think there's a lot of reasons why you know the, 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 the veterans are fearful of, of, of the NHS, but that shouldn't uh, that shouldn't reflect on the NHS because there are fantastic services, and I'm 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 a, a benefactor of many fantastic services, you know, surgeries and uh, prosthetic, uh, MS, you know, help, help with the MSK issues with my back, you know, to the point where now I can work, uh, you know, a full time job and run around after the kids, you know, and that they weren't options that that, that were on the table when I was in that. Um, um, sort of uh, cycle that Teresa mentioned where, you know, I was highly medicated. I, w- I was immobile. I was unable to use my prosthetic legs. I was propelling in my wheelchair, you know, gingerly, you know, isolated, not communicating with people, not taking the social opportunities that I was being presented with. And it, it's a slippery slope where, you know, you know, that sounds really obvious, but it only takes one of those, you know, um, well-being spokes to, 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 to sort of drop out of your wheel um, to, to really feel that impact. Um and, and the knock-on effect of that is, is, is unfortunately, veterans not being able to access service for a magnitude of reasons um, and, and the effect that has on families, friends. Um, you know, it, it really can. You know, I've, I've been there at the, at, at the moments where things aren't looking great. You know, if you, if you are physically incapable because, you, you know, you, like my, my, my position where I had a, a bad back preventing me, you know, it's painful every time I moved. Um, you, you know, where, where do you start? And you begin to you know, have have different ambitions because, you know, you may be, well, me personally, I was becoming quite depressed. I was gaining weight. I was turning to alcohol. I was smoking again. I was doing all these things that I didn't do at Headley Court. And guess what? At Headley Court, I was, I was on a trajectory to, you know, smash it and really, you know, get on with it. And then I had this fall off point where things weren't going great. And, you know, and, and reflecting on that, I thought, well, actually, come on, Greg, what can you bring to the party here? You know, you've got these fantastic services available to you. Yes, they might be a little bit slower. They might, there might be frustrations in communication and it, you might need to just, you know, speak up and have the confidence to say, this is what I need to, to, you know, and this is what I would like to achieve 
And once I understood that, and once I was shown how to do that, you know, by fantastic organizations like Blesma, we're, we're, we're pivotal in, in my care, you know, and saying, giving me a little bit of a kick up the backside and saying, come on, Greg, you know, you're a big boy now. You need to, you need, you need to, you know, speak to the GP. You need to, it, it, who's aware that this situation is unfolding? Um, you know, because I was relying on my family, you know, on my wife, you know, quite a bit, you know, to, to, to you know, to sort of speak to her about my mental health and, you know, like I need to get an appointment. What do I need to do? And then actually, you know, do you know what, Greg, the ownership is on you to, and, and that would be what I would share from my experience with other veterans, you know, what can you bring to the party? You know, um, is, is it that, you know, stopping smoking might, might, might help, you know, the way you're recovering. Is it that you're using alcohol as a, as a crutch and a coping mechanism, you know, yes, there's some wonderful attributes to alcohol, you know, it might, it might make you more social, it might help you sleep, but actually we all know the negatives. Well, and I, and I felt that I felt more depressed. I felt lethargic, didn't want to get out of bed. And and they're they're the really clear, obvious things that veterans can bring to, you know, physical sort of uh, disability and physical, uh, you know, MSK issues. Um, Because, because I'm just fearful that if we don't, if we don't sort of, you know, embrace rehabilitation with, with the fullest of attitudes. And I'm not expecting, I'm not the fun police. And, and, and I would hate to see the veteran community, you lose some of those um, rough edges because, you know what, that's what makes us fantastic. But what we need to do is actually be, you know, think about it in a, in, in a bit, bit of a professional way, you know, almost like an athlete. That's what I, that's what I sort of, um, that, that, that's what I sort of try to uh, relate to some of the service users I, I come across, you know, so you think of yourself, as an athlete right now what can you do that's going to bring the best out of you you know is it that do you know what i'm not going to drink every night of the week is it that i'm going to cut down on the cigarettes is it that i'm going to try and maintain a decent body way uh, you know these simple things be, be more physically active you know look after my mental well-being spend time with the kids you know read them a story all these things that actually help increase self-esteem you know help you sleep better you know better nutrition and guess what you know that that cycle it begins to sort of turn the other way, you know, it gives you the, the self-esteem and confidence to, you know, get into work, to, to, to volunteer opportunities, to be a better father, to be a better husband, to be a better mother, to be a, you know, a, a, a better partner, you know, whatever it is that, that, that sort of just enables you to engage life. So I think that's, that's my message. The message is what, you know, without being too hard on yourself, just think about the, 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 the quick wins and the small things you can bring to the party to, to enable your rehabilitation. Greg, that's absolutely fantastic. Some really amazing messages there. Don't be fearful of the NHS. Approach this like an athlete. There are fantastic services. And, you know, hearing your story, you were doing so well uh, while you're still serving in your rehab. And then you left and you fell off the edge a bit. But look at you now. Um, Take ownership. Let people know you have served. But ultimately, and I love this, what can you bring to the party? And it's stopping alcohol, potentially smoking. I think that's such a great, great line for all of us, um, or for everyone to sort of think about how can you take ownership on your own health? Um, H, I'm just going to, I see you nodding there. Was there anything that you wanted to add to that? I, I think Greg's point about consistency is really important. And even though I kind of, you know, paint a kind of a very positive pitch for NHS, we know we've got a lot of work to do to make sure that the provision for Armed Forces community is far more consistent, far more available and far more uh, understood both within and without the NHS. So even though, um, you know, I think we're on the right journey, we've got a long way to go. And, and, and Greg's absolutely right. A more consistent approach to so any veteran, any member of the Armed Forces community and their families can access this kind of care at the right level wherever they are in the country. Fantastic. And Teresa? Yeah, and just to add to that, I think um, the... Uh... There's a, a requirement to better educate our leaving personnel, especially those that are medically discharged. Uh, the resettlement process for leaving personnel is absolutely brilliant. I mean, it is just an incredible process. And I think that uh, the, 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 the MOD need to perhaps create a separate uh, bespoke resettlement process that goes along the, re- the normal resettlement, but actually better supports them because uh, the, a lot of the opportunities are not taken up by those serving personnel because they're not in the right mental health space. You know, they haven't got the motivation to go, oh, what job shall I do? Oh, what should I go and do this? You know, all they want to do is just exist, you know, for the rest of that day or, you know, work out how they're going to, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, pay their salary to get, you know, food on the, you know, on the table to feed their families. So I, I think there's... a. Uh, um, there is a space there for the MOD to perhaps look at that specific uh, group 
and perhaps try and create a, um, a bespoke resettlement for those med- medically discharged. And then you can create that uh, education that H and Greg have both talked about uh, in their discussions. And you can perhaps improve their communication skills. You can provide you know, them an understanding that they're not going to be dropped, that actually the, the quality of care is no different. It's just different But actually, there's different ways that you've got to access it. And you've got to be much more uh, vocal and take control, like Greg has said, in actually uh, accessing that. So I think there's a space there that we can um, all do better. So for the service user, take control, be proactive. And I suppose for the family members, you can support them with that. And we've got a separate family episode at the end of this series as well. Thank you. So H... Can you tell us about the Veterans Trauma Network and what it does? Yeah, so the Veterans Trauma Network basically came out of this concept that, you know, as I said, we've got military-focused clinicians within the NHS throughout the system. And they're really, they're, they're desperate to look after armed force community. You know, they really are. They've worn uniform or they're wearing uniform and they want to look after the members of the armed force community, many of whom they looked after previously. So we know they exist within the NHS. And what we've done is basically link them up. So we've now got these people identified. And so what does that mean is if a veteran comes in um, with a service-related healthcare issue, doesn't matter you know, how it was how it was suffered, it might be a training accident, it might be combat-related, could have been just you know, twisting your ankle, going around the block, something like that. They can be referred in by, via their GP to the network. We do a process where we look at what the physical healthcare problem is, what needs they want, what needs they have from a medical perspective. But in addition, we're partnered with Defence Medical Welfare Service, so one of our military charity partners, who provide a veteran support worker to that individual veteran and their family to identify as anything else that can be provided. Because, you know, the NHS is, is good at doing the medicine. It doesn't do all the other stuff, which is really important. So looking after the families, looking after the, you know, all the kind of social issues, who's going to pay the rent, are there any other issues that need to be dealt with that could be really con- contributing to making this individual and their family's life better. So they will do an unpacking with the veteran and their family about, you know, what the issues are. We'll then look at that um, referral and look at the problems that individuals got with a multidisciplinary team. So we have a link up between our physical healthcare pathway, the Veterans Trauma Network, Op Courage, our Veterans Mental Health and Wellbeing Service, our military charities, such as Blesma, have been a really important part because they're an awesome organisation, um, DNWS, Help for Heroes, supporting wounded veterans, walking for wounded, you know, they're all clustered around this individual. And basically what we do is unpackage the problem. And so some of these cases that come through just need very simple provision. They've just got a physical healthcare problem. But as we've talked about already, a lot of them don't. A lot of them are very complex problems that we have to unpackage. And the reason these individuals, the ones we're seeing now as we've matured, have been going around the system for three or four years is because not one person knows the solution. So me as a surgeon, I can solve 10% of their problem. But if the courage mental health person can do 10%, if someone else does 10%, then if you have 10 of us together, we have a 100% solution for that veteran. So I think the real strength of the physical healthcare pathway is, yes, we'll sort out the physical healthcare bit, but the real strength, I think, is that augmentation we have by bringing together physical and mental health, bringing together our chronic pain service, bringing together the military charities, so we get a, we generate a proper holistic solution for that individual and their loved ones. So, I mean, it's been a, a work in progress for about four or five years. We, um, in the last year, And we've put some resource into it from the armed forces team in terms of program manager and a um, case coordinator. And that's meant that we've got more and more referrals coming through, which is fantastic because we know there's lots of unmet need out there. One thing I will say, just just finally I should add is, you know, because we're NHS England, this is talking about England. However, Wales have set a similar system up two years ago, um, VTM Wales, and we had a discussion with Scotland. Scotland are setting up an equivalent. And I've got a discussion with Northern Ireland, which obviously is a is a is a challenging area. But we 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 can I think one of the good things about the different nations is everyone wants to do better than the other ones. So when we pitched Scotland, they said, Well, we'll do it in Scotland, so we'll do it better than England. I said, Brilliant. If you do it better than us, fantastic. So hopefully we'll get this across the whole of the UK. Great. Theresa, 
Is there a difference between the outcomes of people with a direct combat-related injury and people who develop longer-term chronic ailments? To my knowledge, there isn't, hasn't actually been any, uh, the outcomes actually haven't been measured between these two groups. But I think that differentiation is too specific. And I think what we need to do more, we need to better understand what the healthcare needs of our populations are, whether that's in the serving population or the veteran community. And if we have a better understanding of what is what the health needs are of the serving population, then that is going to manifest itself into the consequences of the veteran community. So I think rather than uh, differentiate between the chronic and, and, and the combat, it needs to be what are all the health needs, but also it's looking at what are the health needs of our female population and what are the health needs, you know, of our LGBT and our Commonwealth, um, you know, our populations. And if we better understand those, then I think we'll be in a better place to um, identify what, what's actually needed. And we are we are doing much better, but the two organisations are still siloed. And, and I feel, this is my personal impression, is that the, the, the sort of veteran, the, the, the medical care almost feels like a baton that when you're serving, you know, if you're serving, it's the responsibility of the MOD. And when you're out, it's the, it's the responsibility of the NHS. And H um, articulated perfectly earlier on, we're just a different group you know, of the NHS. There are lots and lots of different groups out there. We're just a different group and we're actually very, very small. So we shouldn't be seen as this baton of handing over because when you hand over responsibility, often that other organisation then abdicates or thinks, well, that's my job done, you know, and and I'm off. So I don't think that it should be seen as that. Uh, And I I think it needs to start with better understanding what those needs are and working on those and, and sort of getting away from that combat versus chronic. So for the services that the armed forces community just it, stop differentiating. It doesn't matter how you got injured or what your injury is, just go and ask for help. So I was going to say, you know, from, from our perspective, from the NHS perspective, um, it makes no odds how you ended up in front of us in, as healthcare needs. So it doesn't matter to to us how you ended up with your healthcare need. We're here to solve your healthcare need. And just one thing with with, with Theresa points absolutely you know, bang on is the ultimate irony is with a healthcare problem that we insert, seeing a particular specialist in a certain hospital, military specialist in a certain hospital, you can then transition out as a veteran. You might end up seeing the same specialist via the NHS. So you know it's not like we've got two separate systems. We've got the same basically provision, just accessing it through different pathways. Greg, have you got any thoughts on this? And is this something that you've observed yeah, as well? Yeah, I think it's something I experienced, you know, in, um, in, in my current role as well. Um, I can't hide my disability. Um, you, you know, I try to. <laughs> but, me, you know, me walking in with uh, two prosthetic limbs sometimes, I have been challenged, you know, by people, um, by veterans who say, well, listen, mate, I'm, you know, I've got an MSK issue. Or I might have a bad back. Um, I, you know, I feel, I feel a bit daft talking to an amputee. And it, I sort of reflect on that and say, listen, you know, just like I said before, the, the thing that held me back the most was an MSK issue. You know, it, 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 pain does not care if you are an amputee because of the most heroic, you know, war effort ever, or if you've slipped on ice, you know, walking to the local shop. Pain is 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 a beautiful thing in some ways because it it's so consistent. It doesn't care. It doesn't care. It'll it'll get you and it'll hold you down if 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 you let it. So. You know, my, my message back is is that consistent message of listen. You know, if you are in pain or if you have a condition um, that, that 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 is preventing you from living, you know, a full life or, or, or achieving your goals, then let's do something about it. Um, and I, and I, and I like to think that you know both sides. You know, we shouldn't see them as separate, but we, but we can inspire each other. You know, the, the the cohort who were injured in Afghanistan, for example, got first class gold standard care. Um, but it's what we can learn from that, that that can help other people. You know, just today I saw an email come through from uh, one of the studies um, saying, you know, um, co- co- combat injured veterans um, are more likely to have, you know, heart conditions and strokes later on in life. So, so we're at this really cool stage, actually. We, we're learning so much from, you know, these uh, the advanced study and, uh, and and some of the great things that have been going on, you know, um, um, in, in the background. 
of actually what you know what can we learn from this cohort who did have a lot of resource and and, and we're you know we, we're prima donnas at the end of the day we, we were spoiled a little bit but you know it's what we can learn from that and it's what we you know can we can we inspire you know anybody with a, with, with who, who requires rehabilitation um, um, and support and, and and I think we are getting very good at that and we, we've learned a lot over these last 10 15 years we have learned a hell of a lot and it's just about now utilizing that 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 lesson across the board fantastic um and and what a great message pain doesn't care it will get you if you let it so that is something go and get that help and don't worry about how you've got that pain and yeah that's that's wonderful h is there any further advice you would like to give to the armed forces community in terms of accessing healthcare i i just say actually we are working really hard to try and get the message out. You know, the education piece that Teresa mentioned to make sure everyone understands the needs of the armed force community. But you know, it's it's a it's a long haul. You know, there are, as I said, a million patient contacts a day in the NHS. You know, GPs are under really under the pump at the moment with lots of other pressures, not just COVID, but you know, loads of different things. So, you know, they may not know what um they should be doing, to be honest. And we see this all the time. And I would say just remain persistent. If we can give you the right information, that self-advocacy that Greg was talking about, unfortunately, is going to be required, at least in the next few years. We're definitely changing, you know, turning the dial on this one, so it will become easier. And then when a veteran or any member of the armed force community or their families go in and see a bit of a health service and say, actually, this is related to time served, then there should be a response. You know, okay, well, I know what to do with this, but it's going to take us a few years to get there. So in the meantime, they could then go into whoever they see in the healthcare system, armed, as it were, with the information, with the knowledge, so they can advocate for themselves. We're working behind the scenes to make sure that hopefully the future state is they won't have to fight to get this, that it'll be obvious and that people encourage them into this pathway. And as I say, we're trying to make it as simple as possible, literally an email. And, you know, some of our contacts are just literally an email from a family member saying, I'm worried about this is what we've got and we can pick it up. So um, I think it's it's a work in progress, but I think we need to work. We work together on this, both from the armed force community and those who are there charged with providing care. We'll end up in a really good place. And I suppose that collaboration piece, it's not just the NHS, military charities, but also the service user, the armed forces community is part of that team. The NHS is under pressure. They might not know. So uh, pulling on Greg's point, be that athlete, be prepared, be armed with knowledge and let them know about time served. One thing I will say, the NHS is under pressure, but do not underestimate how important the system of NHS. We've rolled out Op Courage, the Veterans Mental Health and Wellbeing Service. We've expanded our physical healthcare pathway. We're starting, we've expanded it in Wales, expanded it in Scotland. So do not think for the armed community, this is not important we are still really accelerating this work. Teresa, over to you now. What advice would you give someone with a physical um, issue in negotiating the system um, and making sure they stay on top of their treatment? They absolutely have to own their their disorder uh, or their disease or, or whatever they've got and understand why, the why behind those associated issues and invisible wounds and have the courage to make those invisible wounds visible. So do what Greg says and, and and tell people, okay, I've got this, but actually I'm also struggling with A, B, C, D, E, and F. Don't keep them invisible. And in, in, in thinking, and you need to think out of the box in how you're going to treat them. You know, you're out of the military now. Think of, you know, find like-minded communities and find sources uh, of, um, you know, activities that uh, uh, that potentially may support you and, and, and help in, uh, you know, supporting those uh, th- th- those those issues that you're struggling with. Uh, the second one is, and this is whilst you're serving, uh, and then we're not very good at this. And this does relate to sort of chronic issues. If you have a, a sort of small or less acute uh, 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 MSK issue, uh, you know, as you're going along the service, don't wait for it to become really big. Deal with it. You know, if you've got a, an issue, don't go, oh, gosh, I really should go and see a doctor. But, you know, what? I really want to go on that exercise. So it's in our DNA to go, do you know, what? I'm just going to ignore that because I, that's what I joined up for. Uh, and ignore it and, and then come back. 
And I think that there is that you really need to tackle that problem there and then. Of course, some disorders are going to progress and become chronic. But the way that we're set up in the defence medical services is that you move around a lot of locations. So you'll be in one area for three years and have a pathway of treatment. And then you'll go to a, a deploy, you know, move to another location and treatment can often be restarted again. So it's about owning it and, ha- and having having that voice. And the third one is that we need to educate and empower our patients to challenge clinicians and the system when it's necessary. And we need to teach them how to use their patient voice properly so that they can really influence care. And this is where the AFPPV comes in, in providing them an opportunity to actually, you know, um, explain what their issue is or, or give the issue to, to that group for the group to then, uh, you know, support them and going forward. And, and, and it's beholden on all of us to actually listen to our patients because one of my raison d'etres and uh, everyone gets really bored when they hear me talking is that we exist in the medical world to look after our patients. And as clinicians and medical people, we, also, we can sometimes forget the patients and I always say if we put the set patient central to our decision making we actually can't go wrong so it's really important to educate that patient voice and actually make sure that we're actually listening to it that was great be visible be proactive and I love this everyone was smiling when you said this Teresa tackle the issue when it's small and don't wait challenge the system and use your patient voice use the AFPPV who's doing some fantastic work on the armed forces community behalf. Um, and so finally to Greg, what advice would you give someone to use their patient yeah, voice? Teresa summed that up so well. Um, it was, um, but for me, um, you know, the, the point I made right back at the start, communication, you know, communicate, communicate, communicate. I think it's a, uh, um, a weakness, you know, across quite a few veterans, I dare say, um, <laughs> that, that, that we do we do withhold information uh, for you know for a whole host of reasons, just because of the, the crack on sort of attitude that we we develop, and you know we we want to see peers and family members getting support, but perhaps not ourselves. So please communicate, uh, and also please don't discount yourself. You know, we, we've seen examples uh, across the veteran community, you know, where people are discounting themselves from from from, from services. Um, and, and, and it, it's a broad spectrum now, the veteran community, and rightly so. And we're proud of that. We want to support all veterans, um, you know. So, so ultimately, if you've served at least one day, uh, you know, and you've you've got you need support, please reach out and, and and grasp that support. Just like H said, you know, fire the email across, or if you're more comfortable with somebody doing that, you know, um, it, be it contacting a, a third sector charity. There's plenty out there. But find a way of of making that that contact that you're. Um, that, that you find comfortable, um, you know, and, and, and reach out, and please don't discount yourself. You know, to just just get, get the message out there, and and you know, keep banging the drum until the support is is there. Thank you to all my guests today, H, Teresa, and Greg, and to you for listening. In episode five, we'll be looking at mental health, the various pathways available, how to get help, and what to do if you are struggling. We hope you will join us. Goodbye.